Good morning, everyone. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor of New Hope Church. Um, if you're here and you're visiting us for the first time, in the back of the bulletin, you'll see a QR code right at the bottom. At any point, uh, you could go ahead and scan that, and we'd love to get connected to you. You can share more about our church, and we'd love to hear more about you as well. Um, yeah, if you're on the fence, you're like, man, let me see how it is, and you can still, you can wait for that, but I just want to let you know now. Um, let's say a word of prayer again. This is the time of our service. We, we, uh, we gather around the scriptures to hear what God would have to say for us, and it's always important that as we do this week after week to remember that this isn't just an empty ritual or something that we do. We believe that we serve a God who speaks to us, and he speaks to us through his word. So with hearts of expectation, and maybe if there is no expectation, this can be a prayer to gain some expectation. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us today. Dear Father, we slow our hearts down right now to acknowledge that you are with us. If we were looking at the lyrics of the songs and we meant some of it and we're distracted and we just take this time right now to be present before you because we believe you're present before us. We believe your, your thoughts towards us, as your word says, outnumber the grains of sand on the shore. And we just want to know some of them today, Lord, as you speak in your word, that you would let us know your thoughts. You would speak your heart to us and you would speak directly to the insecurities and the fears that we carry today. Lord, help us to hear from you. Please make that your own prayer right now. Would you ask the Lord to speak to you? Amen. So I read a book earlier this year by an author named Daniel Nyeri. He wrote a book called Everything Sad is Untrue. And it's a memoir that he wrote from the perspective of his childhood self. He's an Iranian refugee that moved to the U.S., specifically Oklahoma, as a child. And he tries to find his way in a new place. He had a royal experience when he was Iran, so, so much as, as far as he could remember. He was a child when he moved to the U.S., so anything that he remembered about Iran was from what others had shared with him. And so half of the struggle throughout the book is trying to discern what is real, what was an actual memory, and what is something that he just ended up believing because someone had said it. But he was treated as royalty back home, and then he comes to the U.S., he's a refugee, and he's treated as someone who's second class as a result of it. And throughout the book, he longs for home. And specifically, he longs to see his father again. Now, we can all understand that to some degree, right? We know what it's like to long for something that we once experienced, long to see someone that we miss that's no longer in our lives. We could wrap our minds around that, what it's like to long for something we miss. But then he makes a statement in his book that is striking. He says that it could also be painful to lose something you've never had. Specifically, to lose something you never had can be just as painful because it's the hope of having it that you lose. You know what that's like? Maybe you go through seasons of life where you're really hoping for something that you never have, you never had before, and it's still painful to lose it even though you've never had it because you find out that you end up losing hope. That loss of hope or despair 
is one of the most painful and greatest temptations in the wilderness. It's one of the most painful experiences and greatest temptations in the wilderness. We are in a series right now called Temptations in the Wilderness, where every week we've been looking at one of the temptations that the people of Israel experienced when they were wandering in the wilderness, looking forward to the promised land. And we've looked at their temptations and how we also experience similar temptations when we're waiting as well. The wilderness represents seasons of waiting. Maybe something you're, you've prayed for something and you're waiting for the answer to that prayer. It represents unanswered prayer. Or it seasons of waiting for rescue or deliverance or for God to save you for something that you're laboring in prayer for. Or even if it's not a specific outcome, you just want to see God's faithfulness and, and His goodness. You're like, I don't care what it is, God. I just want to be able to look at what's happening in my life and see your goodness in the midst of it. I want you to think again, as I've asked you to do before, to think about what is your wilderness? What are you waiting for? What have you been asking for? What is the journey that you're on? You're waiting for some deliverance, some answered prayer, some rescue, or for faithfulness in your, God's faithfulness in your life. I want you to think about that right now. I want you to think about the moments that you are tempted to despair. How can we face this temptation and overcome it? How can we face the temptation to despair and overcome it? Well, there's something that we need to know, and there's something that we can do. Let's look at the first thing. What do we need to know? This is it. In the midst of despair, know that you are trying to find a story. You're trying to find a story. The context of the passage that we're about to read is that centuries before it was written, God promised a man named Abraham, a man with no children, that he would have not just one descendant, but descendants as numerous as the stars. And that these people, would, his people would be a nation and that they would have a place of their own, a land of their own. And in this passage, we see these people, these na this nation that God had delivered from slavery in Egypt, on the brink of entering this land, they began to experience the first fruits of this promise that God delivered them from slavery in e from Egypt, and they're brought in through the wilderness, and now they're on the brink of entering the land. But all of a sudden, they are filled with despair and hopelessness. Let's pick up from verse 1 through 4. This is Numbers 14, 1 through 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So why were they filled with despair? Well, when you read the chapter before it, there were 12 people that were sent into the land to survey the land. And all of them came to the conclusion that the land was good. But two of the 12 said, God's going to give it to us. We should go. We should go with confidence because God is giving us this land, the fulfillment of everything that he had promised. But 10 of the 12 said, you guys are crazy. 
Yeah, the land is great. But if we went to that place and we saw how large those people were, we're like grasshoppers in comparison to those those people. There is no way that we could take over that land. And the people that heard the report believed the report of the ten instead of the two, and they began to weep intensely. And then they began to do something that we all do in the wilderness, something we all do in seasons of waiting. They try to find the story. They try to make sense of this report, this thing, that, this wall that they're facing. They try to understand where they've been and where they hope to go, and they try to understand where they are in light of it. They're trying to find the story to make sense of it. And that's something that's innate to all of us. We all try to do that. We need to make sense of our experiences because we're a story-formed people. Like, if you want to know how to be led into dis- despair is when you look at your story and you can't See why you're going through what you're going through. That's why I said the first thing you ought to know is that in the midst of it, you are probably trying to find the story in the season of waiting. There is an innate drive within us to find meaning in the things that happen to us. Social psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Jonathan Haidt wrote a book called Happiness Hypothesis where he cites a study where people were asked to write about the most traumatic things that ever happened to them. So there were two groups of people. One group was asked to write, write the most traumatic things that ever happened to you every single day for four days, I'm sorry, four consecutive days, 15 minutes a day. The other group was also asked to write something four consecutive days, 15 minutes a day, but it was about anything, anything in your life, anything you want to write about, like how your day went. And this is what they noticed at the end of the study. At the end of the study, oh, I should say one more thing. The person who conducted the study also got permission to, uh, to look at their future medical records, right? And so what they ended up finding is that after a year, the people who wrote about their trauma, the most traumatic experience, ended up going to the doctor less and had less medical complications as a result of it. Now, Jonathan Hyde wrote this, and he said he was in disbelief. He was like, there's no way that simply journaling for, you know, what, 15 minutes a day for four consecutive days would end up decreasing your chances of going to the doctor. But what, what they discovered was the most critical element of this wasn't venting. It wasn't catharsis, like, oh, I'm just going to vent, and I'm going to let people know what happened, write about what happened to me. That wasn't it. It wasn't even about identifying the causes of trauma or the consequences of trauma. That wasn't it as well. The people who experienced the greatest benefit from this was the people who were able to make sense of their stories. That as each day went by, they were able to somehow articulate or understand why something happened to them. Or made sense of their experience. He even asked them to do things that engaged their body like dance and sing. All kinds of things that require physical activity. But that also didn't see the same kind of health benefit. He concluded, and I quote, You have to use words. And words have to help you create a meaningful story. You see, we're tempted to despair when we can't find meaning in our story. It's not enough to be able to vent to somebody. It's not even enough to be able to look at your experience, know why it happened, or know the consequences of it. But to be able to find meaning or make sense of your story is vital. It's critical. You know what you see in this passage? You see the people of Israel trying to make sense of it. They don't see, at at this current moment, their place in redemptive history. They don't see their location in relation to God's promises for the world. They they don't see that this is about more than just them. 
Instead, what did they say? And what does that mean? It says, if only we had died in Egypt. Well, what does that mean? This is worse than anything I've ever experienced before. This is worse than slavery in Egypt. It's the worst thing that could happen to me. What else do they believe? What do they say? God brought us out to the desert to fall by the sword. What does that mean? He's misled us. He brought us out of that high to bring us here to desert us. He's abandoned us. He's brought us here to die. God has abandoned me. That's what they believe. That's the story they believe. What else do they say? Well, God has brought us here to die. What does that mean? He's not only misled us, but he doesn't care about giving us what's good. He wants to harm us. He's brought us here to be destroyed. That's the story they believe. They also say our wives and our children are going to be plundered. They're going to be taken as prey. That means what? There is no future for us. There's no hope. No wonder they weep intensely. No wonder they're filled with despair. There is no hope because this is what they believe. This is the story they believe in the waiting, in the wilderness. It's God has left us. God has misled us. God has harmed us. And there is no future for us. I want you to think about what you believe in the waiting. You might be filled with despair or tempted despair to despair because you haven't stopped to ask yourself, what story am I believing? What sense am I making of the circumstances that I'm experiencing right now in my life? What story am I telling myself? What am I saying about God and what he's like? What do you believe about his commitment to you in the wilderness? What do you believe about his character? What do you believe about his love for you? What do you believe about his power to save? Are you tempted to, to despair because of the story you've believed? About 12 years ago, I was one of the pastors of a church, of an Indian church in Houston. And my wife and I, Jothi and I, had great relationships when we were there. Or people we really loved and who really loved us. But we started to sense a call to New York City. I mean, we, that particular church had term limits on their pastors. It was like three years, and they, they might extend it to five. Like, if they like you, they might say, stay for two more years. And we were there, and it was about the third year, and we, we were trying to figure out what's next. And we discerned, we were sensing a call to New York City. Jothi is born and raised in Queens. This is home for her. And so you would think that moving back to New York would make sense, but it was a difficult decision because it was, you know, we were going to pick up everything and, and move to, to, to the city, and we were going to move as church planters, which meant, like, all kinds of uncertainty. Like, I remember talking to a pastor, and he was like, yeah, you just, if you want to move to the city, just raise $100,000 and come. And I'm like, okay, that's it? Just raise $100,000? Got, like, three months? That's what you want me to do? We did not raise $100,000, but... But we were praying about it. It was a difficult decision because of what we'd leave behind. We needed assurance. We needed to know that God was in it, that God was speaking to us. We needed confirmation, if you want to use that word. And God provided it. Like, God answered the things that we were asking. People would affirm us. And it was just at the right time. It was timely, almost like, wow, like, that's exactly what I needed to hear. There were specific prayers that we were praying, and God answered that to the T. Like things that I didn't know, I, Jyoti was praying it, and God was answering things that Jyoti was praying for. He was answering things that I was praying for. And then there were circumstances that seemed to line up. I don't mean like you see a truck that says, like, I love New York or something. Like, oh, that's God calling. Like, I mean, there were some things, the, the doors that were opening again and again and again. Each circumstance, every time we prayed for something, when we hit a wall, God seemed to answer it. 
when we, we didn't know how we were going to overcome it. And it just filled us with confidence. So we picked up everything and we moved to the city full of enthusiasm, full of expectation. Wow, Lord, if you gave us all these kinds of things to assure us, what on earth are you going to do? What wonderful things await in New York City? So we move here. And we live with my in-laws for about two months because we can't find a place to stay. I love my in-laws, but man, that was a long two months, right? We find, finally moved to Harlem, and because the church where I was interning at the time recommended we, we live in Harlem, there was a community group that was meeting there. And so we moved to Harlem, and we couldn't find jobs for eight months. And all the, whether we, when we raised support and, and, and whatever we had saved every single month for eight months, we just saw that dwindle down, right? And it was a test of faith every time we paid rent. Like, we took a step of faith. We're going to come to the city. God is calling us. But then you see that number dwindling, and you're like, are we going to make this? Are we going to make it? I can't tell you how many times after all the assurance and confirmation that we seem to get, when we got here, I just asked, I asked the Lord, why is, it, why is there radio silence now? Like, why is it that you did all of these things to, to reassure us, but now that we're here, now that we've taken the step and we've actually come to the city, like, you're nowhere to be found. Where are, your, where are the signs of your goodness and your faithfulness? Have you brought us here, God, only to desert us? It was a story we were tempted to believe. I was tempted to despair because I was trying to find meaning in the story. I was trying to make sense of it. I couldn't help but try to find meaning in the story, but I couldn't see it. Or what's worse, I believe that the story that God was writing was that he had brought us here only to desert us. You see, what you, the, one of the reasons you're tempted to despair in the wilderness is because you don't realize you're constantly trying to make sense of the events that are happening to you. Like, where, how does this event and this thing that has just happened make sense of in light of what I've experienced and make sense in light of where I hope to go? Like, how does this make sense in the midst of God's plan? And when you don't realize that that's what you're doing, and you don't realize the things that you're believing, you might be tempted to despair. So what is it that you believe about God in the waiting, about his commitment to you, about his character, about his love, and about his power. What do you believe in the waiting? So what do we do when we can't find or make sense of the story? And here's, you know, I was praying about this this morning as I was preparing this. Like, I don't want to just tell you something and it be devoid of the actual real experience of what it's like to go through this. I know this is one of the most painful things that you can endure when you're trying to find God in a season of waiting. What do you do when you can't make sense of it? This is so much of the pastoral burden. Even, as, even if you're not a pastor, as you try to encourage each other as a community, as, you're, as you listen to each other's stories and you try to make sense of it, it's painful when you're thinking about it and you're like, I don't know. Like, I'm tr I, I get that I'm trying to make sense of the story, but I really have no idea what God is doing. What do we do then? Well, that's what we need to know. Here's what we can do. We can find God in the story. I'm going to explain what I mean and how that's different from what I've just described. Let's read 5 through 9. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, 
The land which we passed through to spy, out, spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he, was, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So Joshua and Caleb were two of the twelve who were confident. They're the ones who saw the land, but didn't just see that the land was good. They, they had confidence to enter the land. But here's what's interesting. They saw, they were in the same wilderness as everyone else. They were in the same circumstance as everyone else. They saw the same challenges. They didn't say that, no, those people aren't really that big, right? They're more like, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're, more, they're more like us. They're, you know, they're more like grasshoppers. You know, I was going to say my height, but I realize that some of you might also be that height. I don't want to offend you. Like, you know, so like they, 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 they're, they're, they're not, it's not that bad. They didn't minimize it. They saw the challenge. They saw the circumstance. They also were trying to find the story, but the difference is that they found God in the story. This is what they say. This place is a great place. This is exceedingly good. And what matters most is God's delight in us. What matters most is if it pleases God, we can have it. If the people there have any protection, it's because God has given it to them. If they seem large and they seem to enjoy the land, it's because God's favor and his protection has been on them, but he has removed it. Like a shadow being removed, he's removed it. So we don't need to be turned away. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to rebel against him. We can be confident. The reason they don't fear is because they fear God. I want you to know that if you're fearful in the midst of waiting, the way out of your fear is to fear someone else, right? It's not to fear the challenges or the circumstance or the crisis. The way to courage is actually to fear the Lord and to know he is the most important person to consider. Joshua and Caleb regard God as the most decisive person in the wilderness. It's not the people. It's not the giants in the land. God is the most decisive person in the wilderness. Everyone else could only see the challenge, but they could see God. Not distortions of him, but in ways that were consistent with the saving love and power. Because I get what you mean. When I said earlier all those things that we could be tempted to believe about God, and I say, find God in the story. Like I get where you're like, well, I'm trying to, and this is what I think God is like. That's what C.S. Lewis said when he wrote about the death of his wife in a book called A Grief Observed. It's, a, it's a, a, just a, a real raw picture of his heart and his faith after it's been shattered when his wife died. And he said, it's not that I'm in any danger of no longer believing in God. It's not I'm, like I'm tempted to atheism in the midst of this tragedy. He says, no, it's worse. It's that this is what God is like. Deceive yourself no more. And sometimes that's what it's like for us. When I say find God in the story, you're like, yeah, I'm trying to find God. And you're like Lewis where you're like, and I think this is what he's like. I've been deceived all this time. But Joshua and Caleb is not in that place. They see God in ways that are consistent with the saving love and power that he's demonstrated in rescuing them from Egypt. I, I want you to know that when I talk about this, this is not just a call to optimism. Like, it's not like you see a challenge and Joshua and Caleb have optimism. It's not that. You see, optimism can feel phony. 
Like, if you hear right now, like, what I'm saying to you is like, hey, just cheer up. Just see that the glass is half full, not half empty. That could be optimism. And it could, it could feel phony because it's not rooted in anything. You could feel like, look, I'm trying to be a realist. I realize the challenge is here. But optimism can feel phony, and it could actually be unhelpful. In his book, uh, Good to Great, Jim Collins talks about things that have made leaders and businesses very successful. And in one of, in the, one of the chapters, he talks about something called the Stockdale Paradox. Okay? Um, and the Stockdale Paradox is named after a man named James Stockdale, who was one of the highest-ranking naval officers in the Vietnam War. And Jim Collins interviews James Stockdale about his experience as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. He was repeatedly tortured, and he had no idea whether or not he would make it alive, out alive. And, and James Stockdale told Jim Collins that the people who did not survive, he survived, but the people who did not survive were the optimists. And Jim Collins was a little, like, puzzled by that. I'll just read a little bit of what, what, that, what, he's, what that interview was like. Collins asked, who didn't make it out? And Stockdale said, oh, that's easy, the optimists. The optimists? I don't understand, I said, now confused. Stockdale replied, the optimists. Oh, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. Then Easter would come and go. And then Thanksgiving. And then it'd be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. He said the people who couldn't make it were the optimists who were always just having wishful thinking, oh, we're going to get out by this time, and they didn't make it out. And so what he essentially says, to paraphrase it, is you need something different than optimism. You need a brutal assessment of the facts and an unwavering commitment to the future. How did Stockdale survive? A brutal assessment of the facts and unwavering commitment to the future. So please don't hear that I'm saying you just need to be optimistic and say, we're going to meet the end of that promised land by Christmas, by New Year's. 2023 is going to be better. I know it. I can feel it. I can sense it. It's not what I'm asking you to do. Yes, have a brutal assessment of the facts, but have an unwavering commitment to the future. Well, how? You can have an unwavering commitment to the future when you, when you see more than just a challenge, but you can also find God. You see the challenge. You see the struggle. You see, uh, make a brutal assessment of what it's like. But what gives you an unwavering commitment is that you also find God and his goodness and his power in the story. And you keep that at the forefront of your vision. You see the challenges in light of him. He becomes the most decisive person to consider in the midst of the waiting. So where is God in the story? Can you find him in the story? What do you regard as being more decisive in the wilderness? Who looms larger in your mind than God? What circumstance or challenge seems greater than him and dwarfs him in your eyes? What distortions have you believed about him? Can you find him as he actually is in the story? You see, when we can't find, understand his ways, which is what I was saying before, one of the greatest challenges is actually trying to understand what on earth are you doing here, God? Like if I think about that story, I told you we didn't have jobs for eight months. When I think back of the, the first like, spark in our hearts about a calling to New York City, I would never thought it would in, it also entail not knowing where we're going to live, not having jobs, 
It was going to require a path to being a middle school teacher in the Bronx, becoming a lead pastor of a church in Manhattan, end up closing down that church, having some people gathering as a team, experiencing a pandemic, not gathering together for service for 16 months, meeting in a cafe in the second floor of Cafe Latte, and then being at a school. In the, like, I would have said, no, thank you, God. It's all right. I'm fine in Houston. That's what I would have said. All of those challenges, you're trying to, you know, in the midst of that, you're trying to make sense of it. And I would also say one of the challenges also is as you think you find some meaning, you start sharing it with others. Like, oh, I think I know why I went through this, right? Because God was teaching me this story, this lesson, or he was leading me to something else, right? He took a person out of my life. How many people have said, oh, he closed this door in this relationship so he could bring a, an even better person into my life? And you realize that person has problems too, just like you, Right? That relationship don't work, didn't work out. And then you have to go face that, those same people again and say, ah, uh, yeah, we broke it off, right? The kind of shame that you feel in having to face people after you were so sure of what the story was about. See, we struggle to find, understand his ways, but in the midst of that, when you can't understand his ways, please hear me, you got to find his face. You don't know what his hands are doing what he's doing, what he's rearranging, how he's making, paving the way for you. When you don't get his hands, when you don't understand his ways, you've got to find his face. And the knowledge of the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, who died for our worst sins. If he didn't abandon you in your worst like, they're in the midst of the story, you might even be tempted to believe it's not working out because I did something wrong or God has left me because of my sins or because of something I did. And you're tempted to believe that he might abandon you because of your worst. But Jesus tells us something different. If he didn't abandon me in my worst but came near to me in the midst of my worst, why would he, be, he abandon me now? Why would he leave me now? If he were going to leave me, I would have already given him reason for it. But he didn't. When we wonder, God, did you bring me out here to die? Realize we are asking someone who loved us so much that he said, I have come here to you for you to die. I have come for this purpose. When we're discerning his purpose and we want to conclude that his purpose is to desert us and to leave us to die, he came to us for this purpose so that he would die in our place so that even if we don't understand his ways we can gaze upon the knowledge of the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ and be convinced in the story that he will never abandon us he will never stop loving us he will never stop pursuing us he is always with us he will fulfill his purpose for us he will see us through to the end we're trying to understand his ways we can still look to his face. If you're tempted to despair, it's probably because you're trying to find the story. And when, even when you struggle in the midst of that, we could pause and we could try to find God as re he's revealed in Jesus Christ in our stories.